Welcome to part two of our conversation on community with Brian McLaren. We already had an amazing, just such a rich uh, conversation with Malika Cox. I want to welcome now Dr. Lance Rodman. Uh, and here's here's the thing, uh, Brian. Lance is good gracious. Now I always forget, Lance. Are you 25 uh, or 26? If you have to press me. <laughs> At 20, 26. So Lance is going to be like one of the wisest people in their mid twenties. It always, sometimes it agitates me. It's like, boy, I sure wish I could have found some of this stuff out when I was in my mid twenties. Like I wish I could have jumped to some of the second half stuff uh, a, a decade or 15 years earlier, which sounds really, really great. Um, but he's, uh, he's one of our pastors on staff and I'm really excited about connecting uh, the two of you. And we do want this to be just kind of a natural extension of some of the conversation we were having before. So Lance, I'll let you just kind of steer us out of the gate in terms of uh, wherever you want to take us as we just uh, continue to go deeper talking to somebody that I know from afar, we've all seen as an elder in our lives, um, just deepening this conversation. Yeah, for sure. Uh, So just kind of sitting as a fly on the wall in part one, uh, I don't really know how much more good this can get, but I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful. And, uh, Brian, I just want to say thank you for being on and Jonathan and Malika, thanks for asking me to be on here. It was, it was kind of funny whenever Jonathan messaged me to be on this. Um, I said, Brian, who? And totally joking, um, <laughs> because I've got a whole shelf on my bookshelf of, of Brian's books. I've, I've digested them and reread them. I think, uh, a new kind of Christian, my first copy, um, it, it fell apart because I just, I kept reading it and kept reading it and in a season in my life. So just thank you, Brian, for being on here and, and giving us some, well, some hey, wisdom. Lance, listen, that means a lot. Uh, but it's, it's freaking me out a little bit to think that you were four years old or five years old when the book came out. So, uh, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> for sure, you know, uh, so, yeah, I'm 26, but in the gay community, that's like 36. So you know, we age just a lot Listen, faster. Hey, can, can I just say though, there's a lot of that's truth to really that because we were talking about these four stages: simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and harmony, which is just my way of synthesizing the work of a whole lot of other great uh, human developmental theorists who've gone on before me. But um, you know, people who are in marginalized communities. Uh, very often their their development is accelerated because they they have to live with the mm. sense I'm part of one community that rejects me and doesn't understand me and I'm part of another community that does and in a mm. sense that takes a person out of the realm of simplicity very very young you know uh, mm. wow yeah that's so true um you know, so kind of, uh, I know that we wanted to focus a little bit, uh, you know, on the inclusivity aspect of community. Um, if y'all haven't listened to part one, go do that. Cause that's kind of a precursor for what we're going to dive into now. Uh, you know, I've got my copy of, um, Christian identity in a multi-faith world in front of me. And, you know, one of my favorite books of yours, and there's this quote. Um, so I always write my favorite quotes on the front. Uh, page right there, just so they're right there. And this one is, the more we insiders succeed in shutting others out, the more I tend to feel locked in, caged, Mm. trapped. 
that's such a powerful, powerful statement. I wonder if you could could talk a little bit about your view of inclusivity and 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 really what you mean by the more you shut somebody out, the more you tend to be caught up in that as well. Do you mind just yeah, diving into that um, a little? Uh, Lance, uh, maybe I could take two tracks in, in responding. First, on a kind of theological level, we, we know that people can read the New Testament and they can come away with a hyper-elitist uh, response. We are part of the one true church that gets it right. We're, I, I call it the church of the last detail. <laughs> you know, yeah, the Baptists had it, but they didn't have tongues, and we have mm. speaking in tongues. Or, well, they have speaking in tongues, but they don't have casting out <laughs> demons. Oh, they have casting out of demons, but they don't have the right eschatology. We understand the former reign and the latter reign, or whatever it is, right? We, 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 we have this church of the last detail uh, uh, mindset. And so, and there's no doubt you can read the New Testament and come away with that kind of hyper elitist mindset. In, in my language of this book, Faith After Doubt, that is, you can stay in simplicity and read the Bible from the perspective of simplicity. Um, and what that will allow you to do then is you will only see what can be seen from the framework of simplicity, which is all about creating insiders and outsiders. Um, now, there are occasionally people become weary of that and suspicious of that and tired of that. Um, and that's often what pushes them on to another stage where they're capable of broader acceptance. Just as a, an example, I remember I was, you know, I'd grown up in a fundamentalist uh, family and then I was on my way out of faith uh, as a teenager. And then I had this very powerful spiritual experience. And uh, I, I had a mentor who was a few years older than me, and I came to him with a question. And I, you know, who's right? These people or these people? And my friend said to me, actually, I think there are four different ways of looking at that. And I'm really comfortable with any of those four different ways. <laughs> and I remember, you know, <laughs> it, it blew my mind because I, I just... I, I remember that moment because I didn't even have the categories to process that. In a sense, he was responding from a stage two complexity framework, and I was responding from a stage one simplicity framework, which uh, it's always nice to bring in a Latin phrase, but my friend and colleague Richard Rohr often quotes this great Latin phrase from the medieval scholastics, especially Thomas Aquinas. It goes, quid quid recipitor ad modem recipientes recipientis recipitor, which means anything that is received is received according to the manner of the receiver. We receive based on our capacity mm. to receive. Um, uh, and and yeah. so people in, in a framework where it's all about in or out, us or them, accept or reject, include or exclude, it's just very, very hard for them to see any, any other perspective. And so that for me is sort of the personal way to understand part of what's going on here is that, and then people create communities where it becomes just a feeding frenzy of, uh, I'm more pure than you. I reject more people than you reject. I'm of the really pure, pure, pure Puritan group. Why are you three steps below me? That kind of a thing. Um, but here's the irony. Uh, 
I, once you break out of that and you go back and you read the Bible, you start to see, oh, you know, we start with this sort of innocence in a garden where there is no religion, there are no rules, there are no rituals, and uh, there's just people walking naked with God in the cool of the day. Um, and then comes the first argument over the right way to do religion and somebody dies as a result. And, uh, and in a sense, what we see for the following, you know, the rest of the Bible is people arguing about how are we supposed to live in this world beyond the garden. And you have law come along and law creates the, the clean and the unclean. And then you have wisdom come along, like the book of Ecclesiastes, where, 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 Ecclesiastes, where the writer basically says, yeah, the light, world's not that simple. Uh, you know, you can, you, you, and, and in fact, law plays very little role in, in Ecclesiastes. And then you have the prophets come along and they say, yeah, you can obey all the laws, but if you don't uh, care for your neighbor, it's not worth anything. If you don't care for the poor, it's not worth anything. And, and so then Jesus comes along and in a sense says, yeah, the law could bring you so far, but I need to take you beyond where the law could take you. I think that's what he means by the state, the statement, um, love is the, uh, I'm sorry, when he says, uh, 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 I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to take you to a place the law could never take you. Mm. And he advocates love. And then Paul builds on that and, and has this idea of universal love. Or, or Peter in the book of Acts, who says, I should never even call anyone clean or unclean. Now, if you take that statement, you realize I'm not working in the framework mm-hmm. of law anymore that sets apart clean and unclean. All that's to say, mm-hmm. when you go down that journey and you realize this whole thing is about love, it's about solidarity, not separation and exclusivity. When I see other people being rejected, now I feel oppressed by the system because it's telling me to reject people that the spirit of God within me is calling me to be in solidarity with. That was a long answer. I'm sorry to ramble on, but I hope that's helpful. No rambling here. Wow. That was, that was so helpful. Um, You know, that, Mm -hmm. that line where, Peter says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. You know, that's so central to my own understanding yeah. of, of myself and, and how I fit into the story of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's yes. a scripture, right? You know, I didn't come to, and I've, I've talked a lot about this with Jonathan and, and folks at the table. Um, my journey toward realizing that it was okay for me to be gay and a Christian wasn't me running away from scripture. It was me rediscovering scripture. It was me diving further into scripture. It was, it was allowing myself to deconstruct whatever you want to call it. Those old categories from the fundamentalism that I grew up in, where it was all about exclusion. It was all about who's in, who's out, Who's going to heaven? Who's going to hell? Like you said, the the right way to do it, yes. right? You know, as as a Reformed Baptist, we were always taught we're the we're the heirs of the Reformation. Yes. We're the we're the highest form of evolution yes. of Protestantism. Mm-hmm. You know, getting away from that, it was me diving into yeah. Scripture. And I think you know, so my question would be, 
I don't think that anybody that has ever listened to you or has read you can say that you ignore scripture or are just flippant with scripture. So how do you, that's right. Brian, how do you reconcile? I don't know if that's necessarily the right word, but how do you go about doing the work of theology, reading scripture, um, from a viewpoint of inclusivity, yeah. because they're not they're not necessarily separate. Gosh, what a great question, Lance. I l- let me mention maybe two things that experiences that I had. Um, one of when I was a pastor, one of the, my fellow pastors uh, passed on to me something that he had heard, and it w- went like this: If you see a big lump in the bed, um it's probably a good idea not just to pull the blankets tighter, but to actually open up the bed and see what's in there, <laughs> um, which was his way of saying, mm-hmm. uh, which I think mm-hmm. is a, a, a good metaphor for saying, if you see a problem in the Bible, rather than pretending it's not there, why don't you look more deeply into it? And, you know, when I just mentioned, for example, Peter says God has shown me I should never call anything clean or unclean. And then you realize, but hold it, there's a lot. The whole book of Leviticus is about figuring out what's clean and unclean. How do we put those together? Um, there's, a, there's a lump under, uh, under the covers there. Let's uncover it and let's explore it a little more deeply. Um, I, 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 another pivotal moment for me came when a friend handed me this you know, this photocopy of an article by the great Hebrew uh, scriptures, Old Testament scholar, uh, Walter Brueggemann. And it was a simple little article that went like, it was about what is the biblical attitude toward the monarchy? And um, in the monarchy, for people who don't know, there, there was a period in Jewish history when they were ruled by kind of tribal chieftains that we call judges. And then they're replaced by a king. Um, and Brueggemann said, well, there's one line of scripture that says when we ask for a king or when the people ask for a king, they were rejecting God as their king. So in this idea, the monarchy is a terrible thing. But there's another set of scriptures that say we used to do terrible stuff, but that was because we didn't have a king. Once we had a king, that was really a great blessing. So Walter Brueggemann says what scholars often, or what preachers often do is they suppress one voice and lift up the other voice. He said, but maybe what we should do is say, this isn't an issue that they all agree, nor is it an issue of contradiction. This is an issue of argument. <laughs> Some people saw the monarchy as a great thing and as a gift from God, and other people saw it as a, almost a challenge to God. And then Brueggemann concludes by saying, maybe that's biblical wisdom, that Monarchy has some upsides and some downsides, and we'd better beware of both. Now, simple, but here's what happened when I read that article. I thought, the Bible contains arguments. And that, to me, Lance, Hmm. is is one of the – if people can see that, because as soon as you see it, as soon as you give yourself permission, it's there. It's full of arguments. And as soon as you see that, then you realize, okay, there are going to be arguments in this book that argue for exclusion. And there are going to be um, arguments in this book that argue for inclusion. And now I am faced with the ethical choice 
of trying to work that through. And if I could just say, uh, Lance, so I am 100%, I came to the place where I was 100% for the inclusion of, uh, of LGBTQ persons. And, and people say, oh, that means you mean everything goes. But then I would have to turn around and say, actually, no, I am fully for the inclusion of LGBT persons, but I am not for the inclusion of people who want to oppress and harass LGBT. LGBTQ persons. And, yeah. and if you, if you say, yeah, how do you justify that? I'd say, well, look, if we were to make an analogy to a hospital, I am willing at this hospital to accept everybody, but I can't accept people masquerading as doctors who want to go around and administer poisons to people. In order to protect the people that I'm here to serve, I have to keep people out who will harm people who I'm trying to serve. And yeah, so uh, I call that purposeful inclusion. Um, so, but it's not easy. But it, I, it's the only livable alternative I've found. Yeah, mm. I love that so much, Brian. And I think you know, because I'm thinking about how I feel like you've been leading so many conversations around well, this for a long time in terms of inclusion and scripture and um, and community. And I'm just wondering, and I don't mean this just in the sense of kind of perception, because I know that I feel like you've, you know, my sense of you is you're, you've always been a person who's so genuinely about the work. I definitely don't get the idea that you're sitting around like Googling yourself or whatever. But it's interesting how when I think about, okay, like in just if I've been following you roughly for the last, and that sounds about right, I guess it'd be just over 20 years following your work. When I think about how much has changed in that period, and, and you know, I'm saying this clumsy because I know, thinking about like your stages of doubt, uh, we've had, you know, all the groups are kind of always with us, but kind of to say it in shorthand, I, I definitely think about a time in which it seemed like there was a certain kind of white evangelical narrative that was so prominent, um, at least in, you know, again, in North American spaces to where anybody who was saying something different yeah. was, was such an outlier and you know, such a, you know, radical heretic, like whatever. Now I feel like that conversation has moved so much further along. I think about how many people just in my own life, and I think anybody would have this experience who not only are deep into those kind of conversations, but probably a lot of those same people now either have rejected their faith or their faith hanging on by a thread. And now it's become, what do I even do with the Jesus story? Do I stay connected with this at all? Um, just as a person who's been participating in these conversations for a long time, I'm just very curious in terms of like your own sense of how your role has shifted and, and what, if anything, you find yourself doing differently or, or do you do anything differently as you find that, you know, that, that, that's, society at large and culture continues to, you know, to, to move so rapidly now, do you have a sense that your vocation continues yeah, to kind I, of I shift do, and change Jonathan, along with that? I, in some I way? don't know if I understand it very well, <laughs> um, uh, but I'm feeling it literally huh. today because I'm finishing up the edits for my next book, which is sort of a sequel to faith after doubt. It's called, do I stay Christian? And, uh, I realize uh, uh, I, halfway through the book, I have this realization, and that is 
I, I really don't care if people stay Christian in, in this sense. Like I want people to follow Jesus. I want people to be the most loving version of themselves they can. But I realize that the Christ, that the thing called Christianity is so many different things that I understand why people would want to reject it. Um, and, uh, uh, and in some ways, I would rather have a person leave affiliation with a Christian religion and be a good person who follows Jesus than be a, a sort of card-carrying Christian who believes all the doctrines and everything, but doesn't love their gay neighbor or doesn't love their Muslim neighbor or is, you know, is unwilling to, to be critical about their own racial assumptions, you know? So, uh, and part of that is because of theological changes in my mind that I, I, you know, I don't think the primary story is uh, of the gospel is a story about how to get souls into heaven. I think the primary story of the gospel is how God's will can be done on earth. And when I, when to me, the whole gospel is reframed in that way. It reframes a lot of other things too. Yeah. And you know, that statement there, you know, that, you know, your work reminds me a lot of that, that statement from, you know, from John Lewis where he says, yes. get in good trouble. I think you do, a, you get in a lot of good theological <laughs> trouble. Um, you know, the stuff you were saying, yeah. you know, 15, 20 years ago about Islam wasn't fashionable in American culture at that time, you know, um, the stuff that you say about inclusivity and, and, the, and, and what you just said about not necessarily caring if somebody stays a card carrying Christian, as long as they're a loving person, um, you know, that, that takes a little bit of guts. <laughs> and, uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you, how you stay such a gentle person, you know, this is my first time interacting with you in person, mm. but, you know, watching you on YouTube and reading your books, you just can get that you're a gentle person. But I just want to say it's one of my goals as a, as a scholar or pastor, whatever you want to call it, to have an article written about me by the gospel coalition that says why you should ignore Brian McLaren. That's my goal. <laughs> As, as a writer, as an author, pastor, <laughs> if, you know, if, if you piss off the right people, then obviously you're doing something right. So how have you gone about that in your career? Uh, well, you know? I, I mean, uh, gosh, so many things are coming to my mind right now, Lance, but one is I, when I, I I've never been a fighter, you know, I'm, I'm more of a peacemaker type person. Uh, and I don't get any pleasure. I, th I think I can be relatively good at argument, but I, I don't get pleasure out of vanquishing an opponent, an opponent. And I don't get any pleasure at all out of being in a conversation with someone else who's trying to vanquish me, right? So I don't want to do to my neighbors what I don't want mm -hmm. to be done to me. So um, uh, mm -hmm. trying to find some alternative to, to something that just feels wrong and distasteful, uh, you know, has has been a big uh, aspiration or or challenge for me. Um, when I started becoming controversial, I, I tried to avoid it by being very indirect and all the rest. But even that was enough that the heresy police, uh, you know, put me under suspicion. And so then I realized, well, uh, 
if, if they're going to attack me, even if I try to be indirect and vague, why don't I just say what I actually think? And then I'm going to have to deal with the consequences. Yeah. And something I actually just wrote in this uh, newest uh, book in progress, it's better to be rejected for who you are than accepted for who you are not. And yeah. once you realize that mm. people are, re- if, if they're rejecting you for who you really are, then in a sense, okay, they, it's better for them to know who I really am. Now, very often they reject a caricature of you or very often here, if I can be honest about this, a lot of this theological talk, people aren't rejecting me. They're performing their own loyalty. You know, they're performing their own virtue. They're, they're showing everybody I'm one of the good guys because I attack one of the bad guys. In fact, I can't, can't tell you how many people through the years have contacted mm-hmm. me and said, I used to preach sermons against you. I'd never read one single book you'd written. I knew nothing about you. I just mm-hmm. knew that I would score points with wow. the people I was trying to impress by throwing your name out there. And, you know, so it's it, at the end of the day, mm-hmm. it's not even taking things personally. It's, it's realizing, of course, this is how it goes. Of course, this is how systems work. Of course, this is how change happens. And again, you go back and you read the Gospels and suddenly you realize, oh, that's what Jesus was doing. Like, I think this has only become clear to me in the last year, maybe, that the reason Jesus, I mean, Jesus antagonizes the Pharisees. It's not like he's trying to be as nice as possible as he can to the Pharisees. He antagonizes them. And now I realize he knows he's he's not going to win many of these people over, um, but he realizes if I can draw the distinction between what I'm about and what they're about, if I can draw that distinction cl- clear enough, it gives people a choice. And and when you mm-hmm. really just go through and read everything Jesus has to say about the Pharisees, he's both antagonistic and highly nuanced. Like there's a place he says. Listen, they sit in the seat of Moses. Uh, you know, just don't follow their example. <laughs> um, you know, listen to what they say, but don't mm. follow their example. Mm. It, it's highly nuanced, but he's not just trying to avoid mm. controversy. And nor is he being a bull in a china shop. I think very strategically, he's deciding, I really am uh, saying something different than these folks. And I might as well not try to hide it. I might as well say it as directly as I can. But uh, as you say, uh, Lance, mm. there's a but to do it with without hatred and without hostility, to do it with love and appropriate humility and gentleness and so on. I think that's yeah, I think that's important. Sometimes I see that really clearly in Paul. Like in Second Corinthians, there's a place where Paul says, "Look, you know what does he say? We're the I think the King James said it, we're the off-scouring of the world, which I think means we're the chamber, we're the contents of a chamber mm. pot, <laughs> which is saying everybody just considers mm. us a, you know, a pile wow. of crap. And in a way, what he's saying is, I know full well what people think of me, mm. um, but I know who mm-hmm. I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and I'll try to do what I'm supposed to do. Wow. Oh, that's so good, Brian. I, and I... I'd love to ask you, and I feel like this this would maybe be a good place to wrap up. I love Lance's question so much, and I, you know, I always feel like whenever we have conversations like this, 
um, uh, just with the table crew, it always there's this wonderful sense of synchronicity, spirit, whatever. Um, but I think even, of course, I want everybody to read Faith After Doubt, but I am excited about um, your forthcoming book, Do I Stay Christian? And I think um, as kind of a part B to Lance's question about how you've stayed tender in response to certain kinds of criticism, pushback, whatever, even writing this this book that you're writing. I mean, obviously the the answer, I know the answer to the question for you is clearly you have remained a Christian and a reason uh, there and a reason that many people have stayed tethered to the broader Christian story and find themselves connected to the tradition in a meaningful way. I just saw something. I haven't been as active on Twitter lately. I keep meaning to um, correct this. I didn't mean to be so long of a hiatus, but I saw and I'm not even, you know, and I'm not even trying to be like a jerk about it, but I saw somebody posting something, this, this uh, tweet that was going around this whole idea, you know, something like, I don't remember the exact verbiage, but it was something like, progressive Christianity is just sort of a layover on the way to atheism or something, you know, it's just like a, a stop on the path to atheism. Clearly yeah. uh, that's not been the story for you, but as you're engaged in all these conversations with people who are wrestling with, what do I do with Jesus? What do I do with the word Christian? What do I do with, with the, with the Christian story? Why have yeah. you st- why have you stayed connected yeah, to it? Well, Why are you still a follower maybe I, of Jesus? I could just say in this book that's sort of on the top of my mind because it's what I'm finishing up right now, and it's obviously a big deal. Um, uh, the, I, I, the, the, the book is divided into three parts. Part one is no, part two is yes, and part three is how. Um, so part one is saying, do I stay Christian? No. And I try to write, mm. uh, I, I have 10 chapters where I try to capture the 10 best reasons to not be a Christian. Um, and uh, then what I do in the second ch- 10 chapters is I don't try to refute those. I think they're irrefutable. Um, uh, uh, things like the history of Christian antisemitism, the, the uh, white Christian patriarchy, uh, Christianity's love affair with money, um, uh, Christianity's history of violence. Uh, uh, you know, all of these things are irrefutable. And, um, uh, and anyone who wants to say they aren't that important, they don't affect that. I'm, I'm just going to say that kind of Christianity, I want to leave. <laughs> um, so what I do in part two is I say, knowing mm. if you know what you know from part one, how, um, why would you ever say yes to being a Christian? And I offer 10 different reasons. And, there's, and I, I, I can't really just say there's one that stands out. But I'd say if if I one that that stands out significantly is I love Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I think Jesus was right. Um, I I he's the kind of person I want to build my life around, and I have built my life around. And um, so that's a starting point. And if I feel that the Christian religion has largely ignored Jesus and turned him into a factor in a cosmic equation of guilt, uh, of appeasing an angry God. But, you know, if I feel the Christian religion has done that, does my desire to follow Jesus and have some critical words for the Christian religion, does that make me a non-Christian or does that make me a Christian? Do you see what I'm saying? Um, so mm-hmm. that's part of what I grapple with yeah. in, in the second part of the book. Um as well, I, I say this, 
if I were to leave Christianity, I would be leaving all the good people who are trying to reform Christianity and make it better. And I would be strengthening the gatekeepers of the traditional forms of Christianity that created the atrocities that I talk about in the first part of the book. That doesn't feel like a very responsible thing to do. Wow. So those are the kind of things that I engage with. Um, and, and, uh, and then what, what I try to do in the third part of the book is I say, listen, if you decide to leave Christianity, I understand why. How are you going to live? And if you decide to stay Christian, how are you going to live? Because at the end of the day, I think the problems that we face are not just Christian problems. I think they're human problems, and everybody has to face them one way or the other. So that's what I try to focus on at the end of the book. Uh -huh. Ooh, that is just gorgeous, Brian. I can't uh, wait no, for this book. It is, comes out, when does it come August, out? Is it first of September next year? Next year, I think. Okay, okay, brilliant. Well, I'm definitely excited about that, and... Just can't thank you enough for this um, for this amazing conversation. Both parts have just been so so good. Um, and Lance, Malika, as always, so thrilled to have you guys on. I tell you, it's, I feel like this. It's like this. Whatever I listen to, you, Brian, I feel like. It, but all the more so talking to you today, just feel saner, clearer, uh, uh, much more ready to jump back out there and do what I do. It's like okay, this makes me want to feel like. Keep it on. So thank you. I just can't imagine how many of us out there who feel that way, who feel like we're able to to keep going and to stay encouraged because of the kind of content that you generate just speaks on such a a, a soul and cellular level to us. So thank you so much for pouring well, into us let me just today, say, my friend. Jonathan, really is mutual. You know, Lance meeting you today um, and knowing you're out there with a life to live and a message to bring and Malika, uh, meeting Malika today and knowing this beautiful mm -hmm. work you're doing in, in community building. Um, all I can say is I, I'm honored to be, uh, uh, you know, in the same plow, <laughs> pulling the same plow with you guys. So thank you. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Well, thank you again, my friend. And uh, join us. We'll be back with another uh, Table Collective podcast uh, soon. But this has Thanks. just been uh, so rich. Thank you again, Brian.